the role of, of HR is to become more of a facilitator and a coach and an orchestrator rather than the doer. Too often, employee engagement has been seen as an HR thing when really it's an everybody thing. It's not extra work that managers do on top of their quote unquote real work. It's fundamental to getting the real work done. Welcome to the HR LMD podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR LMD podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking, and achieve significant HR success. Hello, and welcome back to the HR LMD podcast. My name, as you know, is Nick Day, and I am CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, and we are specialist HR recruiters. Now, whether you're listening to this for the first time or the hundredth time, let me take this opportunity to say thank you for joining me today, because we're going to be exploring a really exciting subject, which you'll all know, which is called the science of a high-performing workplace. I'm joined by Kevin Campbell, who is an employee experience scientist at Qualtrics. He's also the founder of Lift Leadership LLC, a certified coach with over 1,000 hours of paid executive coaching and workshop facilitation sessions. Now, Kevin currently helps Fortune 500 HR teams leverage data to develop and retain their people. And that's something that we're talking about all the time in the world of HR. How can data really impact our businesses and our workforces to really improve and drive performance? Well, today I'm going to dive into his 10 years of experience to understand the techniques he uses to identify and coach the high potential, high performance, next generation of HR leaders, those that will be leading our country, leading our companies, leading our corporations in the world of tomorrow. So without further ado, I guess, I'm going to really get into the nitty gritty of a disconnected world we're in at the minute between data researchers and HR leaders. Kevin's the expert to tell me all about that. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I love your energy, especially on a Wednesday morning and uh, uh, Wednesday <laughs> afternoon, early evening for yourself. I love it. No, it's all good. It's all good. I love the show. I'm really super stoked to have you on board to talk about something that I love, which is all about analytics and how it's really impacting the workplace. Before we get into that, first question I ask all my guests is this. What do the words human resources mean to you? To me, it means working with humans. Uh, and, and working with humans as they are, as we are, not as we'd like ourselves to be. Yeah, nice. Uh, okay. And what I mean by that is, is most of our decisions, most of our thought processes are quick, automatic, based on heuristics and beliefs and emotions. Some, some have estimated as much as 70% of the decisions and choices that we make tie back to those instant, intuitive, instantaneous decisions that we make based upon everything that we've been through and everything that we've seen up until that moment. And only about 30% are actually due to rational, thoughtful, deliberate thinking. And to, to really be in human resources or to really take the full resourcefulness of what it means to be human is to lean in and not reject that part of us uh, that we, we tend to think of as being maybe a little bit quirky 
uh, maybe a little bit of uh, irrational, but to really think about that as being what truly makes us human and to, to really tap into that, accept it as what is, and then take the next step of leveraging it uh, for greater experiences and greater performance and uh, better well-being for all. Amazing. I love that response. You know, it really ties into what you do. For those that missed my speedy introduction, I know I speak really, really fast. You may have have missed it. You're an employee experience scientist. So I suspect already in that first question, we brought some stats into the show, which I love. I know my listeners are going to love the statistics as well. What I really want to know as we get into that in more detail then is what made you decide to work in this particular space? What was your journey to becoming a people scientist? I mean, many people don't even know what that is. I didn't know what it was until I was in my, <laughs> my, my late 20s and, and on to my second career. So, you know, I grew up incredibly poor. I left my, my parents' house at 18 with no job skills to speak of, except for maybe the ability to talk. Uh, and even that's questionable. Uh, <laughs> but after a, a short period of time, I got involved in mortgage banking. And uh, in my early 20s, I was the youngest wholesale subprime account executive to work for a large uh, investment banking firm. I was in my early 20s making more money than I thought was even possible. And I didn't even have a college degree. And when the financial crisis happened, I was at the the eye of the storm and it completely wiped me out. And it made me go on a journey of kind of self-evaluation to say like, okay, well, that thing that I thought I was going to be doing for the rest of my life no longer exists as a career, really. Uh, How do I pivot and, and make sense of what I'm doing now? And I read just about every book on philosophy, psychology, you know, career calling that you could possibly think of. And I came across this book by a Hungarian-born psychologist by the name of uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, wrote a book called Flow. Okay. And uh, you're probably familiar with the concept of flow. It's all about being completely absorbed in what you're doing in the moment. You just lose your sense of self because you're so engrossed in the activity. Uh, A real hallmark uh, sign of flow is when it feels like just a few minutes have passed, but it's actually been several hours. You forget to do things like eat, use the restroom, drink water, (laughs) right? You just get so engrossed in what you're doing. Engineers experience this. You've probably experienced this uh, in a podcast where you're just, you're like, oh, wait, what happened? 100%, 100%. Athletes call it being in the zone. Anyway, so I read this book and I was like, okay, I have to figure out how how I can find a career that will allow me to experience flow. Because I was making a whole lot of money in the mortgage business, but I really wasn't that fulfilled or happy. I was actually pretty miserable despite all that. And I I wanted to find some sort of sense of engagement in the next thing that I did because, well, that didn't work out. Uh, You know, I'm I'm not going to be the uh, 25 year old uh, millionaire that I thought I was going to be. So I have to kind of re- repivot and, and do some other things. And Csikszentmihalyi's theory, and, and he's demonstrated this, really goes back to you experience flow. And I'm, I'm kind of doing this hand motion. I don't know the right way, but when you're at that perfect intersection or perfect balance between challenge and skill. So it's not about doing something so hard that you experience anxiety or so easy that you experience boredom. It's about doing something very challenging, but you're very well equipped to meet that challenge. And that really all goes back to your personal disposition and your natural strengths. So I took every psychometric assessment that was out there, some that are are, are less valid now that I've, I've actually worked in this space, but I didn't know. You know, I did the Myers-Briggs, the Finder, everything that you could possibly imagine until I eventually found 
this place called the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. And they put me through a battery of tests over a set of two days. And at the end of all these tests, and, and like they tested my music, musical ability, my spatial reasoning, the ability to, to make beats, uh, do art, verbal processing, language acquisition, like everything that you could possibly imagine. And at the end of it, it was determined that I should either be uh, a business consultant or a psychologist. Okay. And I'd never even heard of people science, never even heard of organizational psychology, but I thought, you know, there's got to be something that combines both of these disciplines. Turns out there is, it's called organizational psychology. And there's a, a university about an hour away from where I grew up uh, that had a, a master's and a PhD program in this discipline. So I sent away for the brochure, not thinking much of it, but the brochure gets back to me. And the person that started that particular program was Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. About to say, the author of Flow, it had to be, it had to be. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So you were, you were sold at that point, right? 100% in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the clouds parted and the, the sun shined through and I, I felt like it was, it was the, the way for me to go. Amazing. It's a great story. It's something that came to mind. It's not exactly relevant. I won't say relevant, exactly in line with what you were saying, but it did, it did bring a, I like learning things visually. And I speak to my daughter when she's comes across something that's hard. It sounds like you had the, uh, the carpet swept from beneath your feet, you know, when the crisis happened and you had to change careers. And you were talking about getting that balance right between challenge and, and that, that kind of crossroads you come to. And I always like the idea or the visual. It's not mine. I've, I've taken it from somewhere. I don't know who, but an image I've seen or something along those lines where it's a bit like if you climb Everest, if you spend, or if you've got the skills, if you like, and you do all the effort and the thing to get to the top of Everest, I meet you at the top, but you've flown in by a helicopter. The view is exactly the same, but totally mm. different. We're still at the top. We're looking at the same horizon, but for one of us, it feels so much different than to the individual who's flown straight to the top. And I love that because the perspective actually is completely different, but the view is exactly the same. And I just always speak to my daughter when something's difficult. I say, look, you know, we can fly you straight there, but it won't be the same as going through the pain, going through the challenge, going through the journey. That's when you learn. You know, the, the, the excitement really is in that learning piece. What you get at the end, the vista at the end is kind of that, that accolade, but actually it's the journey that, that, that means the most to you. So it's not exactly what you were saying, but it brought that visual back to me when you were talking about that crossroads and why it's so important to... HR words, funny enough, that you were using, like engagement, like repivot. And uh, these are going to be terms that are very familiar to the world of HR. So anyway, just thought I'd share that because it, it really struck me as a little element. Yeah, I mean, I think about that as it relates to L&D and, and employee engagement and performance management, right? Because, you know, so many of those things, especially employee engagement and performance management, it, it turns into score chasing, right? Did I get, did I get the five out of five on my review? Yeah. How many percent favorable do we have on our engagement survey? Are we ahead of the benchmark, below the benchmark? And so much of that is outcome-driven, uh, which I'm all about being outcome-driven. I'm all about being tied to the why of what you're doing. But score chasing is a bit like flying to the top of Mount Everest, right? Yeah. You're not really trying to get to the top of Mount Everest. What you're trying to do is have an adventure. Absolutely right. right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's hold you there for a second then, because sure, there are going to be sure. HR and L&D leaders that are going to be questioning then, if they listen to this now, and then hopefully they're immersed, and maybe this is speeding fast for them. How do they measure the impact and their return on investment on the kind of L&D programs that they're implementing? If we're not all about score setting and there's other ways of doing it, how can they measure that impact? So how would you recommend they measure it? Well, I think the first thing is to differentiate between outputs and outcomes. Okay. So my co-concentration, in addition to organizational psychology, is program evaluation. So that world came from social programs, nonprofits that are trying to make some sort of an impact in the world. 
and they don't have the same market mechanisms that businesses do. So I have to figure out something else to measure. Like, are we actually making a positive difference? The reason I bring that up is because if you're a food bank and you're delivering food to impoverished people in other countries, what's the measure of success there? Is it how many bags of rice you delivered, which is what a lot of programs did and do, still do? Or is it whether or not children go to bed hungry at night? And the reason that it's important to make that, that distinction is because you could be delivering all of the food, but it could be intercepted by the warlords, or it could all be going to one corrupt family. Or if you're not measuring the true outcome of what you want, you might be missing something by just looking at that operational data. There's an experiential part of all of this. And then tying that back to what's important to you. Another example is uh, when I was with the Gallup organization, they, they studied the happiness of different cultures and different countries throughout the world. And one of the things that they look at is safety. You can't measure safety in some countries by looking at the crime statistics because the crime statistics are only as good as the data collection. They're only as good as whether or not people even bother filling out a report, whether or not the the statistics are even reported accurately. So the way that they get a, a more accurate measure is they ask women in certain communities, do you feel safe walking alone on the streets at night? Right, which is a more accurate thing. So, yeah, I think when it, when it comes to a, a lot of this stuff, what are you really after? If, you, if you're talking about a return on investment, what's the return that you want? How do you want people to be changed as a result of your efforts? And how will that change impact your business priorities? Not always necessarily revenue or profitability or any of those things, although those are great things. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, especially with just the the sea change that's happening in the paradigm shift. There are other business priorities that are important to you. What are those business priorities? Is it is it a sense of belonging? Is it well being within the workplace? All important outcomes that may or may not impact the bottom line positively, but it's still something that is is important to measure for its own sake. So start with the why. Start with what's the the outcome, the real outcome that you're ultimately after. And then what are the logical connections between the different activities that you're going to be doing, the the proximal change that you want that person to, to undergo, and then what's the ultimate impact of that change that you see them going through? No, that makes that makes really clear sense to me. I, I think it's natural for us to assume that organizations that we work for, unless they're not-for-profits along those lines, we're looking for increased profit. We're looking for growth. We're looking for these kind of buzzword terms we get so used to seeing and hearing because we get driven through financial reports and data that you talk about. You say these are kind of the output bits that we see. But actually, I, I wonder how often it is that, uh, that people really challenge the founders, the, the senior stakeholders, and what their real why is. You mentioned that. If we know what their why is, is it actually about having the best well-being program, the employees that are most engaged in that business over anybody else? Yes, profit will come. With, they know that profit is a something that will come with strong engagement anyway. So you can think of that as a secondary objective. But I don't know how often those conversations do take place. It's more of an open-ended question because I don't know the answer. But I guess if what you're saying is we should be looking at measuring rather than return investment in the same way we'd usually look at it based on profit numbers, if we look at return investment based on impact that we're looking to make, that's a stronger mechanism in your world in in a way that you're surmising it than perhaps what companies are doing at the moment. Is that what you're saying? Or or are companies already looking at it this way around? I I don't know. 
I think it's I think it's more of a design choice than a right or a wrong. And I don't think it's an either or. It's more of a, a both and. So when it comes to the L&D world, I think some of the operational metrics that often take precedent are how many of our managers have gone through new manager training? What are the, what's the suite of offerings that we have? How many people have graduated the program? Whereas an outcome metric is how do the managers that have gone through that program, how have their behaviors changed? Okay. How has the experience of working for one of those people changed? So holding that thought, what in your view is the role of an HR or L&D professional in relation to employee engagement? How can they drive employee engagement? How should they be tracking employee engagement? And why, as an employee engagement sort of scientist as you are, why is this so important that this sits within the world of HR and L&D to help drive that forward? I love that question. I think the role is evolving and the role of, of HR is to become more of a facilitator and a coach and an orchestrator rather than the doer. Too often, employee engagement has been seen as an HR thing when really it's an everybody thing. It's not extra work that managers do on top of their quote unquote real work. It's fundamental to getting the real work done, right? Yeah. If you think about engagement as being how, how motivated people are toward their work, how committed they are toward their organization, and the sense of pride and emotional connection they have toward their work and the place that they work. That's the, the crux of what it means to lead people. Everything that, that you have within your experience is really driving toward that degree to which people have that extra discretionary effort. They're, they're committed. They want to stay. And they, they give that extra piece of themselves toward their work and toward the organization that they work for. And that's not something that is only within the HR department. That happens day in and day out. The way work gets done, the people that, that everyone works with, the manager that they have, the IT systems that they work with, the different processes. And like, so HR can't be in all those places, but they can be a guide and a Sherpa <laughs> and a coach and someone who turns to the, the manager and says, you know, it's not about getting to the summit. It's about enjoying this hike. It's about enjoying this trek and, and, and taking everyone with us, connecting, connecting the dots between yeah. business outcomes and these, these silly surveys that we do. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking about what you said there, because we're talking about employee engagement. You, you talk about employee engagement in such a I'd say, but no, I can't think of a better word, but a beautiful way, right? You make it sound so exciting. It's holistic. It's it adds value. It, for me, it would raise the profile of the HR professional in this way. If this is how everyone viewed HR, and yet, you know, I work in HR recruitment, and if I used a slightly different term, if I talked about employee relations, which I don't think is a million miles away from employee engagement, in my personal view, in the world of HR, certainly in the UK, the minute I talk about employee relations. I would say it's met with 70 to 80% of individuals don't want to get involved in employee relations. It's, it's met with negative connotations, disciplinaries, grievances, all the bits you don't want to deal with. And yet actually, based on what you talked about, if we think about the impact here, even dealing with those, to be able to turn someone around from being disengaged to engaged, I think would be one of the most fulfilling things you can, you can do, right? So how would you repurpose the term for those listening who really just don't, you know, can't motivate themselves coming to work tomorrow because they know they've got some employee relations issues to deal with, for example. I've, even I've just put the word issues next to those terms, which I shouldn't have done. This is just how, uh, how natural it is. 
what would you say to those individuals to try and put a put a positive spin, repivot the word, so that employee relations is that that way that you've just so beautifully articulated it of sounding amazing, sounding like something really, really positive within a business. The the first thing that comes to mind, well, there's two different there's two different areas, right? Like there's there's one is is how how is it viewed as a business, which is a, a big thing to tackle. But th- there's also how do you as an individual who's involved in employee relations make the most of that for yourself? And the thing that comes up for me in that question is this idea of job crafting. And it started from some research study where they looked at a, a hospital facility and they wanted to find out who has callings within the hospital facility, who has a career and who has a job. I think we intuitively know what that means, right? Like this calling is like, this is what you're meant to do. A yeah. career is you're trying to climb the ladder and a job is you're just doing this for a paycheck. And what they expected was that all the nurses and doctors would have callings, all the executive level staff would have careers and uh, all the custodial staff would have jobs. But it turns out that a lot of the people in the custodial staff saw their work as a calling. When you ask them what they were there for, what the purpose of their job was, they would say, I'm here for the patients. My job is to make my patients' lives easier, to bring a smile to people's face. You would think you were talking to a doctor or a nurse practitioner. And the reason I bring that up is because what those people have done is something that all of us can do, which is to remove some of the mental fences that we have around what our job is and take power uh, over our ability to craft our job. Because you've you've probably seen people with the same exact job title who are equally successful in their role, but get to those outcomes in very different ways. Sure. Right. I've worked with uh, headhunters, <laughs> right, who are great at what they do because they're incredibly persuasive. They can build rapport quickly. They have a large circle of influence and they can be dropped into a new market and make a ton of connections really quickly. I also know some that are incredibly good at what they do because they're a little bit more introverted, but they use that to their advantage where they develop deep, deep relationships with a few key people that are really well connected within that industry, right? And the way that you craft your job will allow you to be able to use your talents and strengths more so that you can experience that flow so that you are able to, to reach that balance. So what that's to say is, you know, if you're working in employee relations and, and you want to experience more flow, how can you craft your job to make it something that you view, even if it's just tricking yourself mentally in a sense, like cognitively reframing it as, as you know, my job isn't to ensure that we maintain compliance and uh, have good notation on the disciplinary action that we're going to be taking. But my job is to turn a disengaged employee into a satisfied and and maybe even an engaged employee. What are the ways that you can structure the way that you're getting that task done so that it's more fulfilling to you? Are you following up with the employee relations incidents and issues that you're working on six months, a year, several years later, to see where that person's career has gone and how you just being a little bit more human as human resources in that in that moment could have had a huge impact on that person down the road and what are the ways that you can actually schedule your time right like how how, at the beginning of the pandemic there was a lot of talk about how many of um, our meetings could have been emails yeah (laughs) right and that's that's a that's a choice that we make in terms of how we craft our tasks, right? We can we can intentionally 
uh, contrive reasons to spend more time with the people that engage us or craft the way that we execute our tasks in a way where we just send an email call it the the spend versus send strategy sure. <laughs> right um so i think that's part of it is is you know think about the relationships think about the way you get things done and thinking about the way that you're thinking about dealing with employee relations so that you can craft that job more in line with your skills and your strengths and your interests and your passions uh, and really taking ownership over that have you ever asked yourself how can any recruiter understand my hr recruitment challenges Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. You've got a lot of uh, experience in, as you mentioned, program development, program management, sitting in the L&D space as well. So what would you then therefore say, taking everything into account we've listened to and, and, and discussed so far, what is the role of, of a learning and development professional in your eyes that would, let's say, well, how can they go about creating more effective performance management programs. I know you've given us some insights to that already, but I wonder if you can take a level further, specifically for L&D professionals with the program management background you've got, what advice would you give? The thing that people uh, miss in the development of those programs the most is thinking about the manager development as part of that. And I think for L&D professionals, they, they have a big role to play in making sure that those programs realize the goals that they're intended to realize. So um, what I mean by that, and I'm just pulling up some data, and I, I, I just want to be candid with, with the audience that I'm pulling sure. this up because I want to get the numbers right. But I, I was just really interesting when I was looking at this, this research from an HR think tank on what the goals of performance management programs are and then what the outcomes actually look like. Uh, and if you were to talk to L&D professionals or just HR professionals in general and you were to ask them, why do you have a performance management program? And the, the standard reasons are you want to have some sort of discussion of work goals. You want to know what's expected of you. Uh, and 80% of, of folks that were uh, interviewed in the HR space uh, around the state of performance management in 2020, when they were asked, why do you have performance management programs? 80% said that the programs include some sort of discussion of work goals. They also said that only 32% of their managers are good at helping employees set goals. So your goal, the outcome that you're looking to achieve is discussions of goals, but if only a third of your managers are good at talking about them, there's going to be a disconnect there. Yeah, I can, uh, I can believe that stat as well. I think that's, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of assumption in the world of, of not just HR, but all management roles. I mean, you, someone becomes a manager, it doesn't automatically make them a great manager, right? You, you learn and develop as you go, but often it's the high performers you know, moved up the career ladder, they become managers they didn't expect to be without the training or the, or the development program to get there in the first instance. So it's really hard, therefore, to expect them to be able to have that experience straight off the bat, right? So there is, uh, that disconnect doesn't surprise me. I think it's a, it's a gap in the workforce generally, well, and absolutely a reason why we need more management training, leadership training, I think, delivered within businesses. I think there's a real shortage across all sectors and professions, not just in the world of HR. 
And the beautiful thing about it is that it's an opportunity to make L&D part of the flow of work. For sure. Right? If, if there's already a mandate where quarterly or twice a year or once a year, you have to have this performance review conversation, why not embed manager development into that requirement so that it feels like they're just doing the thing that they have to do as part of a mandate anyway. But in the process of doing that, they're learning about unconscious bias. They're learning about how to motivate employees. They're learning about how to be more coach-like because you're embedding the, the learning into that process. Like it's a very stressful conversation for a manager as well as for an individual contributor, but anybody involved sure. in that performance review conversation, it's a stressful conversation. And this is an opportunity where managers are really, really hungry for that learning. If you were to frame manager development as, hey, we'll teach you how to have that goal conversation or that performance review conversation in a way that's not only not painful and awkward, but something that you and your employees might actually enjoy and benefit from and lead to more engagement and happiness at work and, and greater productivity. Wow. Talk about really um, selling the idea of development back to the business in a way that doesn't feel like extra work. Um, so I, I think that's a, 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 a huge opportunity there. And that's a, a role that L&D people can play. You know, another big reason is that 71% of organizations have these performance reviews to help employees grow. It's to actually improve performance. It's not always just to, to measure performance. There's also a growth component. But only 33% of HR folks say that their programs actually result in employee development <laughs> or improve performance. Okay. And some people are even calling performance management uh, and rebranding performance management as performance development. Right. And, I, and, I, and there's two there's two different pieces to performance management. There's the, the evaluative component. There's the measurement component to say, how good are people doing relative to our expectations and how do we track that so that we can determine who gets what bonus and who gets promoted? And then there's the developmental piece, which is how do we actually move that curve? How do we how do we raise the bar so that we're improving people's performance? performance and, and development over time. And when those two things get conflated, a lot of dumb stuff happens. <laughs> um, a lot of politicking happens and, and you, you fail to do either one of those things really well because your, your measurement gets muddled because everyone's trying to game the system. Yeah. And then your development gets skewed because people are less willing to talk about the things they need to get better at in situations where if you're, you admit where you have something that you want to get better at, it might result in fewer promotional opportunities or development. So does, this, does this tie into something I read on your or one of your websites, um, Kevin, where you said that, I think it was you, well, you wrote it, but performance management, go along, you basically got measurement without coaching is useless. Mm, yeah, that's, that, right. that's kind of tying into what you were talking about there. You, you put some nice stats on there. I think you put on your, on your website, 90% of organizations have employee listening engagement programs, but only 7% of employees are actually effective in acting on their feedback. In other words, organizations collect the data, but they don't have any programs to act on that data. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that data side of things. 
it's interesting because I think people in my profession are are actually part of the, the problem in some some sense. I love statistics. I love understanding the world through math and being able to make predictions about what people are going to do based upon past behavior, running that into a, a, a regression model or a structural equation model and accounting for endogenous latent variables. And I already hear people falling asleep in the background, right? Oftentimes it's simpler statistics, simple descriptive statistics that are actionable, that don't even feel like stats, that don't even necessarily feel like data. It just feels like really smart storytelling. That is what compels people toward action, that that gives people that emotional connection. And oftentimes, people analytics are doing people analytics for people analysts, rather than uh, using data as a storytelling method to inspire and create an emotional connection with the people that have the opportunity to drive change and improvement within organizations. So a lot of it goes back to how do you make things action oriented? How do you make them business relevant? And how do you make them more of a conversation than a spreadsheet? So I, I like to use the acronym ABC, action oriented, business relevant, and conversation focused. Nice. Uh, and it's as easy as one, two, three. You pick one thing to act on based upon your results. You do two things about it and you communicate about it three times. Okay, perfect. I like that. I think one thing um, that may be difficult and challenging. So this is going to be a question which um be interested to get your take on it, really. HR departments, payroll departments, shared services functions, they have access to so much data. And with technology getting smarter all the time, with the amount of reports we can pull now from different you know, HR platforms, HCM platforms, things like that, it can be very easy and, and overwhelming, I think, for HR departments because you can go down to the, a data rabbit hole here of pulling out figures and stats on everything. You don't really know what to start, you know, where to start or what you should be tracking. So with that much data at their disposal, do you think it's wise for HR functions to outsource the, uh, the analysis of that data to an expert like yourself? Or they, that expert may not have an understanding of the true culture and, and organizational behaviors of that business or... Is that the role of the HR professional to go, actually, let's take a step back. Where does someone start with all that data? I love the storytelling piece. I I totally understand that. But where do you start? You start with understanding the business priorities and making sure that you're asking smart questions of the data. It's not even best practice, let alone something that's helpful to take the dustbin empiricism approach, which is just, let's just go mine the data and find something interesting. And then we'll present a report back to people that have no interest in what we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, So regardless of whether you outsource that to someone else or whether you um, begin that journey internally, the, the, the thing that you want to get good at is asking smart questions, answers, information, data, as you mentioned, we have an abundance of answers. We have an abundance of data. The the true skill is getting better at asking smart questions. So smart questions are, what are the things early on in the employee experience that lead to greater performance and productivity three years later? To what degree are our employees bought in to this acquisition that we're making? How many of the people that are part of this acquisition that we're making? How many of those folks are actually going to stay once the ink has dried? 
Are we yeah. going to lose the whole engineering team that was the big impetus for us even buying that organization to begin with? Uh, so begin with really smart questions, and then you can start to think about what data do you have to be able to answer that question, and what data do you need to go collect in order to be able to answer that question? Okay. Um, and being keyed into the, the pulse of, of your leaders in your organization and just understanding what are your business challenges and, and how can having good questions answered help with those business challenges and the goals that you're looking to accomplish. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really where you can get a seat in the boardroom as well. You know, if you're using that smartly and you're taking into consideration what the, what the board, what the, what the owners want to achieve, then you can really utilize that to your advantage as an HR professional as well to help them get there, which is great. Now, a little birdie tells me I've got to ask you this. I don't know if you're aware of it, Kevin, or not, but uh, someone who knows you has said you must, must ask Kevin to talk about how a story about you helped a famous uh, restaurant chain make a data decision that influenced the vision and success of the company. So I don't know if you're prepared for this question, but I've been told I must ask you that. So I wondered if you, hopefully that resonates with you and you know where I'm going with this. Um, there's, a, there's a famous restaurant chain you've, uh, you've helped support through data. Can you tell us more? There's a couple of restaurant chains that I've helped support through data. So I'm curious which one that was. Okay. Um, but there, there was one where uh, they were looking at the impact of the employee experience on the customer experience. And... When the CEO was able to look at that, they they said, this is a game changer. Like this, this is going to make a huge difference for us because there are so many different things that we measure as part of the employee experience when you're doing employee engagement surveys and things like this. But you don't always know of all of the things, which of the things are going to yield the best return as it relates to getting you where you want to go. Sure. And uh, we were working with a large restaurant chain, a chain, a quick service restaurant. And what we found was there was a, a very strong relationship between teamwork, collaboration at the location, and customers saying that the food tastes good. And when you think about that, there's there's obviously no clear relationship between employees working together better. There's not like there's something magical that happens when employees work better together that makes your burrito taste better. But if you think about, especially the way that this restaurant is set up, it's set up like an assembly line. So as people are building the burritos or tacos or whatever it is, you have different employees lined up. You know, one person's laying in the beans, other person's laying down the guacamole and then the meat and so on and so forth. And when people are working well with each other, it influences not just the way that that burrito is structured, but the overall sense of, hey, this is a, a place that has it together. This is a fun experience. This is something that I, I want to spend my time doing and a place that I want to be so that when you actually eat the food, going back to that heuristics component, right? Like in a rational sense, there's no connection between collaboration between teams at a quick service restaurant and food tasting better. But from an experiential perspective, the whole experience feeds over into what it's like to enjoy that food and to make that connection. Yeah, that makes I mean, it makes total sense to me, right? Going and getting a great service just just makes you feel more confident about it. You're right; it doesn't necessarily directly impact the taste, but I can already feel better about the food I'm buying if I've got a great, you know, customer service rep at the other end helping me, talking about my day, whatever it might be. Just you leave feeling better and. I guess taste is probably is associated to the way that we're feeling inside as well, right? And it, there probably is some science behind that because when we're feeling down, we eat different types of foods when we're feeling up as well. So maybe there is some scientific connection somewhere in there. But um, oh, totally, there's there's a halo effect. I can I can adjust the scores on your employee engagement survey just by virtue of changing what time of year 
the survey goes out, yeah, right? Sure. If, if, if it's going out um, at a time when the, the weather's nice and, and everybody's uh, taking it easy, uh, you just had a great pizza party and uh, like th- things are going, going to be different than if you're doing it on a, a gloomy month or a gloomy day. That's not to say that there's no real reliability to these measures. It's just to say that there are things that influence that. And, uh, and yeah, there's that spillover effect in everything that we do. So what, what's, what's the future for the workplace if we think about it from a scientific perspective at the minute you know employee experience scientists as you are how do you see this evolving over the next maybe as a short termish times so the next 24 48 months maybe five years if you want to go that far how do you see the, the influence of data and the employee engagement employee experience which is right at the top of agendas at the minute for many hr departments globally you know employee experience employee engagement post pandemic now is is seems to be more important than it's ever been before and probably because we've got the great resignation we've got employees now sort of making decisions by where they want to work and sort of voting with their feet. And if they're not happy, they're leaving and they're going elsewhere. There's a war for talent. I know that because I work in recruitment. So all of these things must be kind of creating a cauldron of a hotbed of change potentially for the future. So how do you see the, the journey, the, the, the workplace in the next 12, 24 months, five years? You choose, you choose the duration, but I'm intrigued to know from a scientific view how you see the world changing. Employees are the new customers. For sure. I agree with that as a recruiter, for sure. Your workplace and the experience that you provide is your product and is your service. This is not just true for HR. It's also true for IT. It's also true for the legal department. Your customer is the rest of the organization, your internal customers. And and employees are demanding consumer-grade experiences in everything that they do. Yeah. Right. Your your L and D programs have to rival a workshop that somebody might want to pay out of pocket for. Your IT systems have to be at the same level of experience as as consumer grade software. Your communications platforms, uh, your managers ought to be thinking of the relationship that they have with each of their employees the same way an executive coach or a performance coach might interact with a client of of theirs. Uh, So really moving the needle on understanding that that employees, as a result of the pandemic and all of the the different market forces that are happening, have a lot more options than they did in the past. Yeah. Uh, And as a result of that, you have to provide something that's superior to your competition in order to be able to retain and get the most out of your people. And I think the lens that needs to shift is to think about them the same way that CEOs think about their customers. Really, uh, by the way, I'm in full agreement. I see this on a daily basis in the world of recruitment that I work in. The really interesting thing is employers often act after they lose somebody for those reasons. And when they re-recruit the replacement, they offer all the things that the person left because they couldn't get them when they were in employment in the first place. It's really, really interesting. An employee will leave a business because they're not offered the ability to work hybrid, as an example. So that person will even join a firm that will offer it. But when that company wants to re-recruit a replacement, they're now offering hybrid. And it's just so interesting that sometimes you've got to be a little bit ahead of the curve and start, don't be so reactive. Listen to your employees now, survey them now, find out what they're looking to do, find out what they want, find out what engages them and start making those implementations earlier in the process rather than as a reactive process. Because as, as you mentioned, as I'm seeing every day, the competition for talent now 
it's incredible. And uh, people are really are choosing where they want to work and they're choosing it based on values. They're choosing it based on behaviors. They're choosing it based on investment. So whether they're going to be invested in, in terms of their own career development pathways, it's not just about money anymore. And uh, I don't think it has been for some time, but certainly the needle has moved significantly in that regard. So it's really interesting to hear it from your side of the fence because I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Oh, yeah. I mean, talent acquisition has been uh, more of a force for good in our uh, recent history than uh, any labor union, (laughs) any HR department, any anything else that's been done to improve the world of work. Uh, has been done through talent acquisition. We don't always think about it that way. We think of talent acquisition as almost being like an adjunct to the rest of HR a yeah. lot of times. But that's the real driver of business results, especially when you have a service-oriented business or where most of your capital as an organization comes from your humans, <laughs> the, the workplace, the people that you work for, right? You know, the reason that the the Googles of the world or pick any any organization that's known for having great perks and amazing workplaces. And a lot of that is driven not just by the piece around employee engagement and employee motivation, which I'm a huge fan of, obviously, uh, but it's, it's driven even more by talent acquisition, that war for talent. Yeah. Uh, and, and the more that we can keep that market white hot, <laughs> the more improvement that we'll see in workplaces and the more productivity that we'll ultimately see within organizations. And, and the thing that wakes most organizations up toward these things is when they start losing not just people, but they start losing their best people. Yeah. Yeah, that's the value curve, really. People, I, think, I think they are starting to look at it now. It's, it's not just what your workforce delivers. It's what are your best people deliver? You know, and what are they? What are they worth in your business? For you to lose that one individual, that two, whatever it might be. You know, what are your best people doing? How are you engaging those people? What makes them great at what they do? How can you get more people of you know of a similar mindset, behavioral profile, whatever it might be, that can encourage more great people that give that great levels of performance into your business? I mean, a lot of that comes through talent acquisition. I'm obviously biased. I'm a recruiter, right? So I'd always say invest, <laughs> invest, invest. No, but it's what true. We We're all it's about so true. Those people, but you know. But and you think about it, like what's what's the differential in, in in productivity between the top performer and the average performer, right? It's like what five times as much, twelve times as much in certain yeah. industries, and at most they're maybe getting paid twice as much. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, which is why it pays to invest in, in, in specialist headhunters firms. Anyway, that's another another conversation, <laughs> the one I'm passionate about nonetheless. Listen, let's open the HR LD vault. Some short, sharp questions for you, Kevin, uh, if you may. Opening the LD vault. First question is this In hindsight, what is one thing you now know that you'd wish you'd known when you began your career? I wish I had leaned into the way we started the conversation around the so-called irrational, intuitive part of human beings. I wish I had embraced that sooner and not thought of that as something to be managed out or worked around or mitigated, but to really dive headlong into that. Yeah, nice. Okay. If you could give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? I think find something that sits at the intersection of what you're really good at, what you enjoy doing, and where there's actually a need because you want to have a life that sits at the intersection of all three. Because if you just like what you do and there's a need, but you're not any good at it, that's a recipe for failure. Yeah. Uh, if, if you enjoy it, uh, but nobody really wants it and you're good at it, that's just kind of a hobby. And if a lot of people want it, it pays really well and you're good at it, but you're not happy. 
well, then you're a mortgage banker like I was, and you probably need to make a, a little bit of a pivot. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, it's a really nice way of summarizing that up. It, it, you've articulated that brilliantly. It makes sense. It makes sense. Um, you may have answered this slightly in the first answer, but I'll ask this anyway. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give to a younger self just starting out in the new world of work? Ooh, I think it's related to what I just said. Yeah, yeah. Find that thing that's at the intersection of what you like, what you're good at, and what people actually want to pay for. And recognize that it's not just about finding the right thing, but making the thing that you do find right for you. And I think that's another aha moment that I've, that I've had, if I were to go back, is, is to say that it's not always about finding that perfect fit, but about crafting that fit and, and sure. making it work over time. And we've talked a lot today about the science of a high-performing workplace. I've mentioned a couple of times here, you're an employee experience scientist. So I have to ask, wouldn't usually ask this question in this section, but I'm going to ask this. What's your favorite employee or workplace statistic? Ooh, I think it was the one that you mentioned, uh, you know, close to 90% of organizations measure uh, and, and collect feedback in some way, but only 7% are very good at acting on that feedback. That's, that's yeah. probably, so I don't know if that's two statistics, but I think they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. And last but not least, what's the guiding principle or behavior you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? Individualize according to the people that you work with. We're all unique and wonderfully gifted and there's no one way to motivate people to set people up for success uh really getting to know what makes each of your people tick and leaning into that in order to be able to customize your approach and how to how to set them up for success amazing kevin campbell it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today to talk about the world of science the workplace hr lnd programs and more i suspect we could probably talk for hours i would Love to have you back on the show to talk about the world of talent and attraction and retention and really deep dive into your knowledge in that space as well another time. But for now, for those interested in finding out more, I will put Kevin Campbell's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So please do link through, connect with Kevin by all means. Uh, there'll be a link to Qualtrics as well, which is qualtrics.com and also a, lifted le- a leadership in there as well, liftedleadership.com if you're interested in finding out more. And of course, if you are an HR or LD professional listening to this podcast and you need some support with talent, you need to help from a specialist recruiter myself please do get in touch with either myself directly or any of my team at jgarecruitment.com my contact details and iorl also available in the show notes just leaves me to say one huge thank you kevin for joining me still on the hr lnd podcast i look forward to bringing the next episode to you all again real soon thank you thank you so much for tuning into the hr lnd podcast with your host nick day ceo of jga recruitment specialist hr recruiters If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favourite podcast channels. Till next time.